In this lecture, I'm going to discuss the text Innovation and Repetition, which, unlike the other text I assigned for this week, Mimesis and Violence, is a relatively atypical one within Girard's body of work and something of an outlier. And that's because it addresses some themes that we don't see him discussing all that much, which include uh, business, technology, and competition in those realms. So part of the reason I thought this would be interesting is because many people come to Girard these days through Peter Thiel, the technology investor, entrepreneur, and sort of major and controversial Silicon Valley figure. And um, that's because Thiel is Girard's former student and one of the biggest um, promoters of his work today, including through his foundation, Imitatio, um, which essentially funds work uh, inspired by Girard's uh, theories. So uh, I think this text is interesting because it gives us a sense of some of the things that someone like Thiel might have found relevant in Girard's work for uh, thinking about, again, realms like business and technology that, in general, Girard didn't have that much to say about because much of his writing was focused on pre-modern societies, uh, religion, mythology, and, and so on. So, again, despite uh, his major influence on Thiel, he, he's not exactly somebody who conventionally would be understood as a business guru. So I also find it interesting that he um, seized upon this word innovation and sort of writes this extensive critique of it in 1990, which is actually before the publication of the text that probably popularized this this concept of innovation the most in sort of contemporary uh, you know business and academic contexts, which were. Um, some articles and then a book written by uh, the Harvard business professor Clayton Christensen, who coined this term of disruptive innovation, right, which is essentially the idea of a um, lean new company entering a particular industry and offering a, a more efficient and cheaper way of providing some kind of product or service that um, disrupted the industry, right? So this is um, this concept of disruptive innovation, which Christensen, I believe, first wrote about in 1995, so actually after Girard wrote this critique of innovation. And so that suggests to me that uh, Girard was kind of on the pulse of something that was happening, right? And it's not surprising in this regard that he was at this time and was for the last couple decades of his career in, uh, at Stanford, right? So in the heart of Silicon Valley. And so even though he didn't... Um, you know, comment extensively on the sort of business and technology world he did, definitely recognize the relevance of some of his ideas about imitation, competition, rivalry, and so on uh, to that realm. So that's essentially why I thought this text was, was worth reading early on, because it uh, points to, you know, some of the ways his work touches on themes that are very... Um, very much present in a wide array of sort of industries and fields just because this concept of innovation has become such a buzzword and has really become, um, you know, one of the central kind of prisms through which we think about all sorts of things, right? This idea that you have to innovate in order to survive and so on. So Girard um, 
in this essay, interestingly, sees innovation and the particularly the positive valuing of innovation as a distinctly modern phenomenon, right? Through his sort of etymological account of this word, he shows that in earlier periods, it was viewed almost universally negatively, right? So innovation was only brought up in order to sort of um, talk about things that were regarded as, as dangerous and harmful to society and social stability. So uh, he points out that, you know, many people, when they talked about innovation in the sort of early modern period and medieval period, were generally talking about heresy in the realm of religion, right? So deviation from orthodoxy. So, you know, for Girard, this shows us something about the difference between pre-modern and modern societies, which is essentially that in pre-modern societies, um, the need to have fixed what he calls transcendental models that you imitated and that you um, sort of mimetically were guided by was simply regarded as, as necessary and any deviation from that was regarded as dangerous and again destabilizing. So this is the situation of what he calls external mediation, which is basically this idea that you have relatively fixed models and everyone needs to look up to those models and imitate them, whether they're, you know, the gods or God or saints or heroes um, or simply, you know, patriarchs or parents um, within the household. But the point is there are these fixed kind of lodestars who you look to and the need for imitation, right? The need to be imitative is um, generally acknowledged and seen as, as a positive and desirable thing. So we can think about this in the realm of literature. If you think about um, how you were supposed to write, you know, going back several hundred years, um, you know, whereas in the 20th century, you know, it was kind of expected if you're going to be a big deal writer, you need to carve out some kind of unique style that set you apart from everyone else. In earlier periods, the opposite was true, right? You were supposed to imitate essentially the ancient texts, right? You're supposed to imitate Homer, you're supposed to imitate Virgil, um, and other sort of ancient authoritative writers. And this was how you achieved greatness in literature. So that's external mediation, right? There are these fixed transcendental figures who you imitate, and that imitation is seen as necessary for any kind of advancement or progress, right? Um, and uh, the lack of, of of clear models to imitate is seen as, as dangerous, subversive, and so on. So then essentially something happens in modern societies where this entire value system is turned on its head and imitation comes to be seen as, um, as a kind of um, childish or um, immature sort of um, relationship to the world. And instead, you're supposed to be an individual, you're supposed to be um, autonomous, you're supposed to carve out your own path in life. And of course, this is visible in all sorts of realms, but we might, as Girard does, connect it to uh, changes in literature. And for Girard, it really is, um, in literature and the arts, romanticism that embodies this, um, this shift, right, where you're no longer supposed to look to the ancients or to the, the sort of authoritative texts for guidance. Instead, you're supposed to look inward, right? You're supposed to um, follow your own autonomous 
um, path, right? And so this kind of romantic ideal of autonomous individualism is, he would argue, also where you get this idea of innovation as a, um, a, a benevolent, necessary, and good thing that is what makes society dynamic and um, that, that also, you know, makes the individual fully individuated. So the nature of Girard's critique of this, and we'll get into this more um, in relation to deceit, desire in the novel, is simply that whenever you have apparent individualism, apparent autonomy, apparent innovation, beneath that is a covert substrate of imitation, right? The, inno- the, imi- the imitation never goes away. It's simply concealed, And so this is why for Girard, this kind of autonomous individualism is what he calls the romantic lie, right, in his first book, Deceit, Desire, in the novel. Um, It's a lie because the imitative relationship to models never goes away. It's simply um, moved on to this kind of covert hidden realm, right? And so the idea here is that, you know, you... um, even as you believe yourself to be, and you know, we'll get into kind of his literary examples of this, but even, and, and particularly as you, when you believe yourself to be the most individuated, the most autonomous, Girard claims, that is when you are most um, secretly indebted to some kind of model, right? You, you, are, um, you are in fact uh, a sort of, um, covert imitator even when you present yourself as an innovator, right, or as a purely autonomous individual. So that's the nature of Girard's critique of, of individualism, innovation, and so on. And I think what's interesting in this text is that he kind of illustrates this through the uh, world of business and economic competition. And so what he points out, and I think this is just a, a really nicely familiar uh, version of this idea, is that, you know, you have all these companies that are claiming to be, you know, the new big thing, to be offering something completely um, groundbreaking, to be, um, you know, totally different from all of their competitors. But of course, and, you know, all of us know this, what they're, what they're really doing is um, stealing as much as they can of their successful competitors' ideas um, to the extent that they can get away with it, right, legally. Um, they're, they're doing that to the maximum. Um, and so their supposed innovativeness is actually built on this foundation of a kind of um, constant observing of other competitors and basically taking as much from them as they can. So this is kind of a simple example of how um, innovation and the kind of ideology of innovation can conceal this covert dependence on models, right? And so this is a point that Girard will um, will make throughout his work, and will um, you know demonstrate in various realms, right, from um, sort of individual desires in the romantic realm um, to you know in this case again um, competition between uh, I mean we might say competition between. Artists is another example that he discusses, competition between intellectuals 
um, that that all of this kind of works the same way, right? That um, these these figures who are presenting themselves as groundbreaking innovators and who are f- highly invested in this image of themselves and and promoting this image are always covertly dependent on some kind of competitor or rival from from whom they are um, stealing as much as they can, right? Or or who they are. Um, modeling their their desires upon. So the final point that I'll make here that's kind of interesting is we get a glimpse of Girard's critique of his fellow intellectuals, right? And he's writing again in 1990. Um, so he's someone who sort of came of age alongside various other, you know, prominent, um, particularly French and continental thinkers, we might think of, you know, the, the figures who fall under the heading of postmodernism, which he briefly discusses. And, you know, es- essentially what he's suggesting uh, is that here in the intellectual realm as well, there's this kind of drive to innovate, in other words, to develop um, unique and often sort of strange and outré sort of theories, right, that, that somehow set the thinker apart from everyone else. Um, and yet, you know, beneath that, he argues there's a kind of covert layer of innovation, of sorry, of imitation. <laughs> so again, in the realm of ideas, innovation conceals imitation. So we also get this kind of sense of his critique of this kind of faddish realm of intellectuals who are mostly, you know, his contemporaries, um, many of them these kind of trendy French thinkers, who he, he critiques using exactly the same framework. And so I think because I'd like to, um, throughout this course, you know, think about how Girard relates to these, um, these contemporaries, some of whom are maybe more well-known or, or somewhat trendier than him even today. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about how he is trying to... Um, present himself as an intellectual in relation to these um, these other kind of trendy and faddish figures who he was, you know, admittedly something of a rival and competitor to. And I would say one thing that's important to think about here is, and something that we'll um, come to again and again in his work, is that he explicitly frames himself as somebody who learns everything he knows from reading other texts. Right, so he claims that essentially he discovers mimetic desire because these novelists like Proust and uh, Flaubert and Stendhal essentially themselves reveal it. Right, and all all he is doing is articulating this insight that is already present in these texts. And then, essentially, when he gets into writing about uh, the biblical texts later in his career, his account of it is pretty much the same. Right, that his ideas are not. Are, are overtly derivative, he says. Um, they're not his own original ideas, but rather ideas that he is articulating because he discovered them in these prior texts. So, you know, in a sense, we could say he's um, posing his own intellectual contribution as a kind of return to what we might call an external mediation, because what he's saying is that these these prior texts are are simply richer uh, more complex and more insightful than he himself could ever be, and that he is simply a sort of 
humble apprentice to these um, to these prior texts. So you know, it's it's worth thinking about here to what extent this um, attitude that he repeatedly conveys is a kind of is itself a kind of pose, right? Um, because there's no question at the same time that he's an immensely ambitious and arguably quite, you know, imperious and arrogant figure in a sense. So, you know, on one hand, he kind of tries to set himself apart from his contemporaries by saying that um, they're, you know, constantly presenting themselves as these great innovators, but in fact, they're sort of secret imitators. Whereas he's explicitly presenting himself as an imitator, right? As somebody who's simply learning from these models, the Bible, uh, the work of Proust, etc. And um, what I wonder, though, is whether there's something else um, about his kind of obviously immense ambition as an intellectual that's kind of concealed beneath that um, pose of humble apprenticeship, so that's just a, a question to throw out there, um, because I think it this text makes us think about the the realm of ideas as subject to the same um, conditions of mimetic competitiveness, rivalry, and so on that he describes in all sorts of other realms. And so, given that, it's it's worth thinking about how he positions himself within this. So I hope this is something we can uh, come back to and look at some examples of when we go into um, his other texts um, as the course proceeds. So that is all for today.